there to all of you listening. I want to welcome you back to another in the Life School series that we're working on right now, which is called The Making of a Champion. Uh, we flipped a couple of the weeks around in order to facilitate people's schedules. So first off, a special thanks to Vinny for teaching this past week on the quality that we're going to look at today, which is self-discipline. And uh, let's just review very quickly, because as I've suggested a number of times, it's not in your ability or my ability to be able to take a single component, a single facet or quality of championship performance and apply that and expect that because we do just this one thing right that, that things are going to be achievable. In fact, it is the application of all of these qualities laced together in the right amount at the right time. It is, it is the implementation of all of them together that makes it possible for us to perform at a peak level. And to speak to that again, it means that every one of us is going to be strong in certain of these areas naturally. Uh, wherever you are in life right now, you've had some good stuff put into you. But also, just as true, wherever you are in right, life right now, you have either been unaware of certain things that would be helpful, or perhaps there's been something that's even negative that's been put into you and you need to overcome that. That's true for everyone. I don't care what your background, I don't care how great your parents, how great your education, Every one of us has some fantastic things inside of us already that can help us to excel. But just as true, every one of us has certain components of life that we're either completely unaware of, or if we are aware of them, we're simply not that good at them. So let's quickly move through where we've been and talk about the qualities that all champions, all champions possess. The first is that intense desire. Uh, the desire is the big thing that you want. You want it with sufficient passion. It's the thing that is so often said gets you up in the morning and keeps you up late at nights. Coupled to that must be a sense of self-awareness. And Self-awareness is knowing who you are and where you are. So it's who you are as an individual. It's where that desire is and where you are right now at this moment in time as compared with who you need to become and how far you are away from that significant desire that you have. So self-awareness is something that you carry th with you every day. It's not as if you say, okay, this is who I am, and then you're done with that. Or, I think I know myself well, and that's it. Look, if you wake up tomorrow morning, you read two things, you think about four things, and you try ten things, you're different than you were at the moment you woke up for the day. Because you've got more experience, you've got more information, and so you as a human being are different than you were. The process of becoming self-aware is ongoing. As, as much as the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening, it is our mission in life as champions to become self-aware because you are changing every day. Not only that, but I hate to say this, but hey, we're all lazy and we're all at times undisciplined. And sometimes we let momentary lapses in discipline spill over into becoming days of lack of discipline and in that process pretty quickly we can spiral out of being our best and into something a little bit worse and so self-awareness is the ability to wake up each new day and say who am I and where am I today how am I doing in relationship to what I need to be doing the next quality is humility and humility I'm gonna to speak to it a little bit differently today humility is the ability and even giving the permission to allow others to speak into your life even when what they have to say is not easy. So it's the ability to seek help, 
That's active. It's not passive. It's not waiting for the help to come to you. It's going out and getting it, saying, I don't know this, and I know I need to know it, and I believe you could help me with it. So it's seeking it out. But then it's being willing to take the coaching. You know, all of us are about reaching out to get help until somebody tells us something we don't want to hear, and then we've got a crucial decision to make. I reached out for the help. I understand that this person can help me. I still believe this person can help me, but they've just told me something about myself that I really don't want to deal with. Or they've told me something about myself that really irritates me. And it's at that moment, right there, that you and I each have a choice. Am I going to pursue this? Was I serious about this? Was this desire intense enough? Do I want to achieve this? And am I willing to go through the corrective process, the rebukes, the loving, or sometimes it's not going to feel loving, criticism or discipline? Or the flip side of that, am I simply going to cling to who I claim to be and position myself as being something that I'm not? The next is determination, and that is the process of doing whatever is necessary for as long as it, as it takes, but doing so intelligently. It, it is not, as the old saying goes, continuing to do the same thing in the same way and expecting different results. We all know that's not determination, that's stupidity. Determination is learning from my mistakes, but not being deterred by my mistakes. It's learning and adapting from my mistakes and believing confidently that as I continue to learn, as I continue to adapt and adjust, I'm going to be, be better and that there isn't anything that I can't overcome. I guess we could actually pause for a moment and say that that speaks to a level of faith and hope and optimism. And I want to ask you seriously, where do you get that? Uh, Again, before we get back to the qualities, let me just point this out. The scripture speaks frequently of being people who are in the world, but not of it. And sadly, I think many teachers and many Christians use that in, in negative ways. They talk about it just simply in terms of performance or behavior or shying away from certain sins, not getting trapped in certain sins. And, and there's no question that the scripture does mean all of that. But I think it means so much more. Uh, the best definition of the world that um, I have yet to hear, the one that I shared with our group on Saturday morning a while back, was that being in the world and of the world simply means that you believe that you can do this without God's help, that you don't consult God. And that doesn't mean that you're not a believer. You see, to be in the world and of the world is something that Christians very often do. I might be a believer, but I don't take advantage of. I don't seek access. I don't seek help from God. I don't seek his wisdom at the right moment. That that can be pushed back toward humility. Am I willing to, to listen to God if he has a better way? Am I willing to wait if he asks me to wait? Those kinds of things. So are you a one-plane or a two-plane individual? And that ties in with realism. Realism depends on your outlook on life. And realism, as we said uh, a couple of weeks ago, is this. It is simply aligning your view of reality with the reality that is there. It's not wanting things to be a certain way when they aren't. It's not wanting people to be a certain way when they aren't. It is aligning my assessments of what life is like and what people are like and who God says he is, if I even believe that. It is aligning them with the reality. And so to the degree that my inner assessment of what life is and what it's like and who people are and what they're like, to the degree that it is out of alignment with what is true, 
then to that degree, I'm not a realist. And all champions must be realists because they have to, as a friend of mine often says, accept life on life's terms. And that brings us to the next thing, which is discipline. So discipline is the constant practice of taking what I know and I'm discovering to be true and based on that formulating plans for how I am going to pursue life or pursue this big desire that I have. Uh, again, that means that if I am a realist and I am a two-plane realist, that I say I believe in the material world, but I also believe in a non-material spiritual world, and I believe in a personal God, if, if, if that is the belief system that I claim as my own, then my discipline needs to take all of that into account. And so discipline is two things. It is doing the right thing, but it is also the process of developing the plan for doing the right thing. That's why we have to, and I know some people are uncomfortable with this, but we have to call it self-discipline. I am responsible for this. Nobody else can do it for me. I have to, once I have aligned my view of life with the view of life, once I have become a realist, and, and if I am determined, then I must persistently pursue plans for gaining what I want and then follow the plans. I know a lot of people that, and maybe you and I have been this person at one time or another, they say, if God would just show me what to do, then I'd do it. Well, first I kind of question that because I think most of us have more of an inkling about God, what God would want us to do, than we're willing to acknowledge. But secondly, we automatically suppose then that if God asked us to do something, it would be easy and we just do it. What if God asked you to do something hard? What if he asked you to do something inconvenient? Frankly, what if he asked you to do something that it would be impossible to do without his help, but you weren't ready to own the fact that God could walk you through that? Truthfully, the story of the Bible is the story of people who didn't take God at face value and didn't, for the most part, accept that, he, that they could do what he said they could do with his help. Uh, we can learn a lot from reading the scripture in that light. So discipline is the process of creating the plan, consulting outside sources to help me create the plan, and then, and only then, it is following out the plan and learning from it. So we can't be careless and say, well, self-discipline is just the process of doing. Self-discipline is also the process of planning for what we will be doing. What I'd like us to do now, now that I've introduced the concept of discipline, is pause for a couple of moments, let you think about that. In light of that, how disciplined are you? Because most of us think of discipline as simply working the plan, but discipline involves creating the plan and then working the plan. So in light of the fact that discipline comprises those two components, answer for yourself truthfully, how disciplined are you in each of those two components? We'll pause and come back in a couple of moments. Okay, we're back now. And I want to move on to something else. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance, assuming that I'm not going to explain this principle as well as I would like to, because it's a little complex and I'm liable to honestly trip over my own words a little bit here. But remember that our first component, our first quality of championship performance was an intense desire. Uh, coming back to week one, we said an intense desire that doesn't consume you. That is, the desire has to be held in such a way that it doesn't destroy you in the process of pursuing it. But you have to want it extremely intensely or you're going to give up prematurely. 
Uh, we know that because anything that is extremely difficult, anything that is really, truly extremely difficult and yet worth doing, is going to demand an incredible amount of effort and sacrifice from us. And it doesn't just mean hard work, although it certainly does mean that. It means hard and intelligent work. And some of us like to work hard but would prefer not to have to agonize over the details. Some of us are great at thinking about details and planning and strategizing. We just don't want to do the work after after the thinking is done. But we have to be great at both. Uh, you're not a champion because you can do one or the other. You're a champion only if you can do both. So I want to come back to... A metaphor that is, we'll say, the game of soccer and the objective of a soccer team. The objective of a soccer team, obviously, is to have a winning season. Uh, if you're the coach of that team, in other words, the person who, in theory at least, has the longest range vision and the greatest amount of foresight, then your mission would be to build a winning or a championship team that can win consistently across years. So your goal isn't to win just a game although that would be a good first step. That would be certainly part of the plan. You can't have a championship season if you don't first win a game. But, but the coach's goal is probably more than to just win the season. It's to build a system that creates a championship team that can win across seasons and over maybe even a decade or so. Well, how does that take place? So, I, And I'd like you to think about everything that is involved because it's, it's really actually very complex. You know, there's a reason why so much money is spent studying sports psychology, for sports physicality, and, and all of that, because there really is a lot that's involved in performing at the top level. I have to know game theory, and I have to know it well. I have to have a collection of skills that are prerequisites to my performing at a peak level. And then my body has to be able to perform what my mind knows it has to do. It's not enough to know how to make that critical play. When I ask of my body to go through every step in that process that I, am, I need to do to execute that critical play, my body has to be capable of responding. And it has to be practiced and familiar with that. In other words, the, these man maneuvers, these subtle, subtle muscular maneuvers cannot be strange and foreign to me. I can't have to be thinking about them, agonizing over them in the fractions of a second that they each take to, to perform. So it takes knowledge of the game. It takes knowledge of the position that a player will play. It takes commitment to acquiring a collection of skills. And it takes strength and coordination training that will allow my body to perform in the way that my mind wants it to. Now, all that is true for one single player on the team. And I'm not really a soccer buff, so I can't even tell you how many people are on the field at any given time. Some of you listening probably know the answer to that. But here's the truth. Every player's position on that team is different, and so they all have the same common goal. It's to win the game which is an intermediate goal along the way to winning the season, which hopefully is an, still an intermediate goal on the way to having a multiply, multiple winning season. But every player has a different role there. So every player has to do the things that I just talked about, has to know game theory, has to do strength training or, or practice for coordination, has to know the skills, has to know how his position fits into the overall team. 
And then when all those individual players know and are capable of all those things in isolation, they still have to come together and work together and practice together because all of them together have to become a single cohesive unit, almost as if, quite literally, they play as one with one mind and one strength and one objective. Now, I want you to think about exactly how demanding all that is. And it's why I took the time to explain it that way. Exactly how difficult is it to get all the players on the team to know their own position well, to train to do their part well, and then to align their part with the other team members' parts and have the whole thing function, as, as the, the common phrase goes, like a well-oiled machine. Now, here's the big question. I don't know what your desire is. I don't know what your intensely held desire is. But in all honesty, as much as we all love sports, I hope it's bigger than to have a championship season at at some athletic competition. And so my question to you is, if it takes all of that effort by each person on the team and then all of them together as a team to produce a championship season, and it's just to get a trophy that will sit on a shelf that comes by the process of keeping the black and white round ball out of your goal and getting into your opponent's goal, and that really is the game, and they're willing to invest immense time, energy, and treasure in doing that, then if your goal is more important than to have a championship soccer team, should you honestly expect that it would be any less, less taxing to get to? And this is why we began with the principle of an intense desire and then a deep self-awareness. Because only you and I know, at the heart of our heart, how committed we are and how committed we are likely to be to pursuing this all the way for the long haul until it's done. Let's pause there for just a moment. I'd like you to think about that. Uh, Frankly, we all need to think about that. I'm certainly not immune to this. We all need to ask ourselves this question. Am I expecting this process of getting what I say is something incredibly important that I believe is of great value, not only to me, but to those I care about? Am I expecting this to come to me a little bit more easily than it really will? And am I at the cusp of giving up too soon? Let's think about that for a moment. Okay, and we're back, and I want to introduce a couple of more ideas. And the first one we're going to, to introduce is taking the long-range view. Now, let me remind you of a couple of things that we can look at and see as outsiders when we watch professional sports. And the reason I keep coming back to the professional sports realm is because it is so easy to see some of these examples in athletics, and especially at, at top collegiate or professional levels. And it's this, what you do off the field, and I don't just mean in the locker room and training and all that, but I mean what you do in what would often be referred to as your private life really has spillover effect into your performance life. And and that's true no matter who you are or what you are. That's true if you go to work every day. What you do in your private life does spill over into how you perform at work and how you think and perform at work does spill over into the rest of your life. Our lives are a life. They're not the partitioned individual components that we want them to be or hope they can be. 
your lack of discipline or your intense discipline in your personal life equips you more effectively to perform well in your professional life and vice versa. Your discipline in your professional life will help you to be more disciplined in your private life. And of course, the lack of discipline in one area will spill over and become make you more likely to be less disciplined in the other area of life. So, the first thing that every champion needs to do in relationship to, to peak performance is to have a long-range view. Let me take that back a little bit. I shouldn't say the first thing, but the next thing I should say is, that I want to introduce is taking a long-range view. We've all heard the phrase that life comes in seasons or that there are seasons of life. That's nothing new to any of us here. But what I'd like you to think about is how the win and the cost to winning in this season of life is going to spill over into the next season of your life. And this is one of the long-range costs that we need to we need to look at when it comes to desire. Now, if you talk to a young guy who's single, and he might be thinking about getting married, or a young woman and single and thinking about getting married, and, and all they can see is that they're not married and they want to be married. But there's a cost to being married, just the same as there's a cost to being single, you know, and, and the young fellow thinks, well, I'm, I'm lonely, I could use some companionship, I could use, I mean, if, he, if he's a normal guy, he's thinking I could use some physical companionship, there's all that stuff going on, and he thinks, wow, this is missing in my life, and it would be great if it were there. But for everything that we gain in life, we we will pay a price and we will, in, in certain senses, lose something. Now, I don't want to equate marriage with a loss. That's not at all what I'm saying. But every man who is single has a degree of freedom that every married man, if he's truly married, never knows again. He's not free in the same sense that he was before the two became one. Because once the two become one, the two are one. And the two's thinking and the two's objectives and the two's goals and the two's hopes and desires, they're all fused into one. And so the one is no longer the one, it's the two that's the one. All right, let's bring that back onto the field of play for championship performance at whatever you're doing. There is going to be a downstream cost to everything that you do in this season of your life. Uh, the easiest, clearest way to think about this is getting it an education, I mean a higher education, the kind that you pay for. So the student is 18, he decides or she go, decides to go off to school. Well, there's a price to be paid for that. Uh, I don't know what that is. It depends on the school that you go to. It depends on the number of years that you go. Uh, yeah, to a certain degree, it depends on how serious you were when you were there, which determines how many years it takes. Uh, incidentally, as an aside, they say that for many students, it's taking five years to get a four-year degree. That's a separate thing, but, but there's a cost to all of that. Well, here's the thing. The cost in that education season isn't paid in the education season, is it? No, it's paid in the next season of life. It's paid in the income earning season of life. And so, with the limited life experience that a typical college individual has, they say, well, I know it's going to cost me X number of thousand dollars in this season, but it's going to equip me to get a good job, and I'll be able to pay that off because I'm going to have a great income in the next season of my life. But what is so natural to overlook in that education season, when you're telling yourself that in the next season of life you're going to pay those bills, is this, that in the next season of life is going to come demands and, and expectations for your finances in that season. 
And so what, what the student in college is doing is pushing into the next season of life the responsibilities for what he's gained in this season of life. He's gained an education, but the costs of that education have spilled over into the next season of his life. And the assumption is that the next season of life is going to come without additional demands and costs. But what we know is that season of life comes typically with marriage, with a family, with the purchase of a house, or the renting of, of, of a place to live. It comes with kids and, and the delight that they are, but also the expenses that they are. So we should never assume that we're going to give it all in this season of life, and that'll be the end. The, the simplest way to sum this up is never borrow from the future unless you know precisely what it's going to cost you in the future to pay it back in the future. Never borrow for the present from the future without an astute and an acute awareness of that. Perhaps the only or the best way to get that, apart from creative projection about what you're going to encounter, is to talk to people who are in the next season of life. Have some meaningful conversations with people who have already done what you have, are wanting to do and are now in the next season of life. Did they learn anything that would be useful for you in your season, but they didn't learn it until they moved over into the next season? Take some time to find people that can give you some advice on that. Next thing we're going to look at is champions and resource conservation. Uh, we've talked about the principle of being a good manager, and we said that a good manager takes things that are of lesser value and turns them into things that are of greater value. Incidentally, let me substitute the word steward for that. That's what I meant to say, a good steward, who is also obviously a good manager. But stewardship is the process of taking things of lesser value and turning them into things of greater value. It's then the process of turning things of greater value and turning them into things of durable value, that is, that it has a long shelf life. And then finally, it is taking things of durable value and turning them into things of eternal value. Now, of course, that, that requires a two-plane mentality about life. If you're a materialist, you don't believe there is a eternality to things. And if you're in that situation right now where you're either not sure that there is a next phase to life after, after death here, or you're not thoroughly convinced of it, just take the long-range view in your own family and assume that your kids are going to have things, and your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, that is, you're leaving a legacy, so think about it that way. And what we're saying is that a champion does not use any more resources on himself than are necessary, but he is trustworthy enough, and capable enough, and confident in his abilities enough, that he will use all the resources at his disposal that are necessary. So let me explain that a little bit further. So we often refer to things as luxuries in life. They are not necessities. And how do we define that? A luxury is something that is not essential. But yet what we know to be true is that one person's necessities are another person's luxuries and vice versa. Well, who determines that? Well, that's a personal determination, and this is where discipline comes in. What is a luxury for you may be a necessity for someone else who is attempting to do something at a higher level. So every champion acquires a level of discipline that allows him to say no to resource consumption that does not help him move ahead or does not care for him in a way that helps him to move ahead. But he is trustworthy to the extent 
that he will use the resources at his disposal and invest them in himself as many as he needs so long as they're going to be well used. And so this is why you can never use your standard of what's a necessity or a luxury and impose that on somebody else because you're not pursuing their journey. You don't have their big desire. You have your big desire. And so we as champions need to know this. If you spend necessary resources on yourself that were not truly necessary, then you won't have them to apply to the accomplishment of your intensely held desire. But on the other hand, if you neglect spending on yourself or investing in yourself as is suitable to what you want to accomplish, then you will never become the person who can achieve or hold the worthy desire once you have achieved it. So self-discipline in this regard is the ability to be able to ascertain when something is a necessity versus when it is a luxury and to have the confidence that you will not cross over the line and you will not call something a necessity when it's a luxury, but also vice versa. And toward that end, let me suggest to you, let me suggest to myself, since I'm, I'm, I need to listen to my own words here, we need to have one or two people in our lives who can speak to us and say, hey, are you sure you're not deceiving yourself? It's a beautiful verse from Jeremiah that says, the heart is deceitful. It goes on to say it's desperately wicked, but let's just stop with deceitful for right now. And what that means is that you and I have the tendency to lie to ourselves. We have the ability as storytellers in our own lives to be able to tell ourselves a story about what is that doesn't match reality. Again, coming back to why every champion must be a realist. Hey, let's pause for just a moment. And we'll come back and we'll wrap this up with a couple final thoughts. Okay, let's come back and look at a couple more components of, of championship performance. And, and remember, we're looking at discipline and self-discipline. Uh, the first one I look, want to look at is what's holding you back. I don't know about you, but I think that many human beings, it's safe to say, are accumulators. We're collectors. We pick up things along the way, and we don't put as many down as we pick up. And we know what that looks like when you go to the grocery store, right? You went in there, you had three items in mind. Uh, there was some other thing in the back of your mind that you were thinking, boy, if I could only remember what that was, I think I would need this. But you kind of forget what that thing is. And then you pass it and you remember, oh, I need that. But but that's not the big problem. The problem is that when you're making your trip through the aisles in the grocery store to get those three things and then remember the fourth and you grab that, you also see five other things that you think you could use. And by the time you get to the 10 items or less place at the checkout, you've probably got 15 items and you're trying to balance them all. And, and you got things tucked under both arms. Maybe you got something pressed down your chin, holding it down. And, and you look a little bit like you ought to be in, in a comedy movie or something. And, you know, it's okay at the grocery store because we put it in a bag and we walk out the door with it. But it's not okay when we do that in life, and yet we do. We pick up things because we want them. We have some sort of a half-hearted interest in them. And, and listen, I am no one to throw stones here. I do this all the time. I have a, a kind of an interest in this, so I'll buy a little of this or I'll do a little bit of that and... And over a period of time, we accumulate stuff. Now, this is, for the most part, a first-world problem. People in third-world countries that are just trying to live for the day, they're not thinking about picking up more stuff along the way. But we do this. There's an interesting phrase that is, is used in the Scripture where it says that sin entangles. Well, 
I think that's certainly true, but I think it's more than sin that entangles, it's distractions that entangle. And, and what the writer goes on to say is that sin doesn't only entangle, but think of what entangling does. Entangling kind of like traps you and wraps you up in something so that it either slows you down or it stops you altogether. So if you are entangled in something and you can't break free of it, it can slow you up completely. Or if you are entangled in it or loaded down with it, you cannot travel as quickly. And we've talked about some desires that are time sensitive. They have to be achieved within a certain amount of time or they're not relevant. If you're trying to do something really great, let's say you're you're planning, I mean this is a silly example, but let's say you're planning your daughter's 16th birthday and, and you get distracted and sidetracked and you get it done for by her 18th birthday. Well, geez, it's a little late to, to have it done by then. You need to have the 16th birthday party on the day she turns 16. And anything that gets in your way of doing that is a distraction. No matter how fun it is, no matter how much, no matter how good it is, it's a distraction. Just ask yourself this simple question. As you move through life, as you move through your days, as you move through the hours of your day, is there anything that is entangling you? It's not bad, it's not wrong, or maybe it is. I mean, look, the verse says that sin gets us entangled pretty quickly, so maybe it is something that's wrong. Maybe it's something, a need that you have that you're not getting met in the right way and you're seeking to fulfill it in a bad way, and that's sin. But what's slowing you down? Is there something you need to, to put down? So remember this, just like the grocery store, you can only pick up so many things and get them to the checkout counter before you're starting to drop things. Wouldn't it be better to be very intentional about what you pick up? And if you really are convinced that something is helpful and needs to be picked up, just be honest with yourself. Be a realist. Remember, champions are realists. Be a realist. Say, you know what? If I pick this up, I'm going to have to take something else out of my hands and put it down. All right. I want to talk now for a couple moments on two-plane living. Now, I know we've talked two-plane living before, but I, w I want to return to it because some people are very uncomfortable with the phrase self-discipline. I happen to love it because I try to live in two planes. Uh, just like you, I don't succeed every day or every hour in that. Boy, some days I really fail at being a two-plane individual. That is, I live in the material world and I perform in the material world, but I also trust confidently in God who it lives in a different realm. Well, self-discipline for many people smacks of trying to do it on your own. And there is a truth to something that we need to get a hold of. Whatever problems you and I are facing, whatever struggles that we're encountering, we already know they're there. And sometimes we continue to try through self-discipline to eradicate things from our life or put good things into our lives. And you know what? It's not working. And the reason it's not working is because we're trying to do something in the material level that perhaps we need to have done for us at the supernatural level i.e. we need to be humble enough to receive the help that God offers and we need to be humble enough to receive the wisdom that God offers and then follow it out. But here's the thing. Self-discipline is essential. God can tell me what to do. What we refer to as the Word of God, i.e. the Bible, it does very often in very specific ways tell us things to do and not to do. But it's up to us to do the things. God is not going to do for us what we can do for ourselves. 
So as uncomfortable as many people are with the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, I, I want to part company with many of my friends here because I want to say that I think that phrase holds a great amount of truth. God does not help the person who sits on the side of the road and says, please fix my problems, God. God asks us, what would you like me to do for you? What is it that you cannot do for yourself? And you acknowledge that you cannot do it for yourself and you would like me to do it. But from then on, God expects us to do something. Remember the woman who was healed of, of the issue of blood? And, and what does Jesus say? Now go and sin, or he, I'm sorry, the woman at the, at the well, and he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. What does that mean? There's something you can't do for yourself. You can't forgive yourself. I'm going to do that for you right now. I'm going to break the chain that holds you to your past. I'm going to sever that right now. You can't do that for yourself. I can. I'm going to link you to my Father. That's something you can't do. I can do that for you. I'm going to do that. But what does Jesus then say? Go and sin no more. And that is a self-disciplined matter. That is a you need to take responsibility. I need to take responsibility for my life. So for all those, my friends included, who say that the phrase God helps them who help themselves, that, that's just not biblical, that's not accurate, I understand where you're coming from, but in a certain sense, I really believe that that is accurate. God is not going to do for us what we need to do for ourselves. However, we can't do for ourselves what only God can do. And so let's pause right there before we come back to wrap this whole thing up. And I want to ask you, what in your life is that true for? In what way are you trying to do for yourself what only God can do? And then to counter that, what are you asking God to do that it's actually your responsibility to do? We'll be back in a minute. Well, I heard a phrase a while back that said that uh, great speakers take a lot of time to prepare short speeches because it takes a long time to prepare a short speech. And then the joke was that somebody said, well, I'm sorry, but this is going to be a long speech because I didn't have very much time to prepare. Uh, sometimes I feel that that's true for me, that because I didn't have enough time to prepare, I tend to uh, take a little bit much time in the saying of things that should take less time. Uh, let's, let's move on with a couple more things. This is a powerful phrase that I, I think is worth thinking about. The Greek word nikeo, and that's a biblical term where it talks about overcoming. It says it doesn't so much imply endure as it does outlast an enemy. Here's the way Jeff Meyer words it. It doesn't mean to win so much as it implies endure and outlast the enemy in a way that takes from him his ability to harm. In other words, here's what he's saying. There are some things that we long for in life. There are some battles that we're fighting, some victories that we long to achieve that we're going to achieve only if we simply outlast the enemy. You know, in in what we'll call biblical times, I kind of hate that phrase because that, that, that was such a long period of time, but you'll read about sieges that took place in, in, in the Bible, in the era when the Bible was written. Sieges took place in more modern warfare as well. The sieges were a powerful force on the outside and a somewhat powerful force on the inside of a walled city are sort of at a stalemate. And the fighting men outside the wall seek to trap the people inside the wall until they outlast them. In other words, until the people inside the walls 
food supplies are gone, their water is gone, their armaments are gone, their supplies are gone. And so it really becomes a battle of outlasting. And the person with the, the, the side with the greatest access to resources is the one that wins. Why? Because they both seem to have advantages, advantageous positions, and those are countered by advantageous positions on the other side. So in other words, they're at a stalemate. And the only thing that determines the victory is if one side concedes defeat because the resources run out. And that's really what's being said here. Are you in a battle that you are willing to endure until the other side just finally says, that's it, I give up, I'm done, you've worn me down, I can't do this any longer. And I don't mean that in an obnoxious way, but some battles are actually won that way. As we wrap this up, let me leave us with a couple of scripture verses and a couple of thoughts. Self-discipline, which remember that is our quality for the morning, self-discipline. Self-discipline is actually self-leadership. That you are the person who under the authority of God who has given you, this is important, you live under the authority of God. If you are a two-plane individual, you live under the authority of God and he has granted you the authority in your own life to manage and lead your own life and incidentally to manage and lead those things that are within your stewardship. So self-discipline then becomes self-leadership. It is you managing your life. There's a phrase that I started using a number of years ago. I've shared it with many people. I, I think it's really insightful. And, and it goes sort of like this. If you were to be picking someone, you were to hire someone, you were to interview someone for the job of managing your life, and you were to look at your resume, like you were to separate yourself from yourself, and you were to be able to look at your resume thus far in managing life, your life, would you hire you to manage your own life? Now, if not, why not? And if you can answer yes to that, that's great, then keep on and just get better at it. But if that's not true, I want you to understand something. That, that's simply an evaluative tool. It's not like you will be relieved of the process of managing your own life. God is not going to take that job away from you. You'll just continue to fail at it. So let me encourage all of us, step up into self-discipline, self-led living, because that is your mission. That is, that is one of the stewardships that God has given you. Here is the way that Paul words it, writing to the Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, and he appeals to God's authority. He's not just saying, listen, I want to give you a lecture about how to live your life. Paul's not saying, let me tell you how to live your life. He's saying, God has commissioned me and given me the authority to say, on behalf of Jesus, this is how he wants you to live. So it says, as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you were doing that you do so more and more. So in other words, if you're already a disciplined self-leader, keep it up. Get better at it. It's good that you're doing what you're doing. Learn how you can improve that. For you know, coming back to Paul, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, your life coming more and more progressively in alignment with the way that Jesus would live your life if he were you. And Jesus doesn't live your life. He commissions you to live your life. He commissions me to live my life and asks us to align our lives with his standards. 
So sanctification is the gradual process of getting my life to be led by me in a way that more and more resembles the way Jesus would do it if Jesus had my life to live with my wife, with my kids, with my vision for the future, with my opportunities and responsibilities. Okay, and then he goes on, so that's the positive side, and then he goes on to remind us of some things that can trip us up or trap us. Remember those things that can easily ensnare us. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you may abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now look at that. There couldn't be a clearer picture of self-discipline, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There could not be a clearer demonstration of the fact that God does expect us to exert self-discipline in our lives. There's things that God is not going to do for us. If God was going to do them for us, then we wouldn't see any sexual immorality because he would have already done that. God says, no, I've told you what's right, I've told you what's wrong, I expect you to live this way, and I want you to bring your life in alignment with that. And so I apply that same principle then to the other areas of life and say, no, this, this is what, how we need to live. We need to know what God says, we need to know the opportunities we have, and then it's up to us to diligently pursue them. Here's my final thought for us, men. And, and I'm just going to read it right from my notes here. Don't do what I did is not a legacy to leave. And we've all heard parents or grandparents or, or older relatives who have said that, you know, as you go through life, don't do what I did. I mean, that's, that's certainly a piece of information on the road of life. It's kind of like seeing the, the road closed ahead sign. Hey, don't do this. Don't do what I did is not a legacy to leave. Do what I have done is the far better expression. Don't do what I have done will certainly be a slogan we can all use in informing the next generation. Okay, here's something that I did, don't do that. But it must be followed by, however, here's what I learned after doing that. And that you can rely on. And so what I'm telling you is, do this. And we see that throughout the Proverbs. In the Proverbs... Solomon, as he writes, he doesn't just say, don't do these things, because I've done them. He says, avoid them because, and here are these other things that you can do. When you and I begin to think legacy, when you and I begin to think what we're going to pass on to the next generation, it's not enough to tell them, at the end of your life, don't live the way I did. I'm sorry, that's just not a very good legacy to leave. When you're passing on to the next generation the information that you have learned, you want to be able to tell them, Here's some things I learned that you shouldn't do, but let me tell you these other things that I have done, and this is a good way to live. Go there and do this. Guys, that's what all I've got for today. Uh, try to work these things out a little bit in your own life, and we'll be back again next week and continue in our journey towards championship performance. See you then.